think setting aside one day and being like, okay, so on that day, really try, really try and, you know, make meals that you're excited about and are delicious, etc. I think you're going to have a lot easier of a sell with saying, hey, do this once a week than you are with, hey, are you ready to make that time commitment? Now, of course, you know, I've been vegan now for eight years. I don't think it's a time commitment at all, but that's because I've gotten in the habit of it. Hello, Veggie Mates. Welcome back. I'm your host, Matthew Davey, and you just heard from Rachel Atchison. She is this week's special guest on the Veg Talk podcast. So how is everyone? I hope you had a great weekend and took some time to yourself to unwind and relax. I'd like to give you another small update on our trip uh, for you guys. So this is our seventh night on the road after leaving Boston. We made Ithaca, New York our first main stop. So we stayed there for three nights. I was lucky enough to do a couple of interviews. We also got a tour of Farm Sanctuary, attended the Friday macro dinner, which I'd highly recommend if anyone's traveling to Ithaca. It's hosted by Lewis Friedman and Priscilla Timberlake at their home and got also a foot of snow on, I think it was the second night in Ithaca. Obviously made things a little bit difficult with the van. There was a bit of shoveling to do and whatnot, but we got past it and made our way to Toronto. I've recorded another podcast here with two leaders in the activist and vegan scene in Toronto. We've walked around, checked out Vegandale, of course, sampled a couple of the restaurants. So far, it's been awesome. Really looking forward to the next couple of weeks as we make our way to the West Coast. But now for this week's show. So Rachel Atchison is currently working for the Brooklyn Borough President, Eric Adams, as Deputy Strategist. She's dedicated her time from her college days up until now, helping people become more effective activists, getting involved at the political level herself, and also doing work for animals at the Humane League. Rachel approaches her activism in a very calm and compassionate way and has a gift of shedding light on matters you care about personally with a whole new perspective, leaving you with a new understanding and a new appreciation for how other people might see the matter. This has helped my approach personally, and I hope after you've listened to this episode, it will also help you too. Enjoy, guys. I'll talk to you after the show. All right, third time lucky. (laughs) Third time's a charm. I think we'll call it third time lucky. (laughs) Sounds great. So we're here today, everyone, with Rachel Atchison. She is currently working for the Brooklyn Borough President. Eric Adams, which is pretty cool. And we'll get into that later. But a couple of, or it was probably a few months ago now, we recorded a really good episode uh, up here in New York. It was awesome. It was summer. (laughs) It was a little hotter than what it was today. That's for sure. I think we had the, the AC was cranking before I came into the apartment. Yes. Today's a little different. We're wearing coats and beanies and stuff like that. (laughs) But the, the episode dropped, uh, my, my drive failed. So Rachel's been kind enough to, to give up some of her time again. Today, we went to her apartment and I forgot the the cables that connect, the XLR cables, that's what they're called, that connect the microphone to the audio interface. But it's okay because we recovered. We recovered really strongly and went to Ramen Hood, which is an LA-based restaurant that are here popping up in New York City for a few months. And how was it? 
Oh my god, it was delicious. Yeah, they their broth was so creamy. It was, it was bomb. delightful, and it was packed too. We ran into Danielle of Vegan Treats, and that was wonderful seeing at least one other vegan. But honestly, it was probably full of uh, you know diverse range of dietary habits in it, which was awesome. And you saw your mate Liz, yeah, Liz on D. the way. Yeah, we saw her walking down the street. So, so funny. there's vegans everywhere in <laughs> New York. There's vegans everywhere, and Rachel knows them all. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> no, so that was a. If you're in LA or in you're in New York until January, check out Ramen Hood. What do you think of the vegan egg? You vegan passed egg it on. Was, yeah, vegan so, egg so. was good. I am definitely the whitest person ever, so I can't handle spice. So uh, it was a little spicy. Had for a bit me. of kick. Yeah. But everything else was bomb. Oh, so good. Well worth checking out. 100%. I'll, I'll probably go back this weekend. To be perfectly <laughs> honest with you, it was it was unreal. But yeah, we're back. Third time lucky and Third time lucky. it's um, it's going to be a good one. So, yeah, I think the best place to start always is to just hear a little bit about, you know, where you're from. I know you grew up in the D.C. area yeah. um, and you had some pretty cool parents. So, yeah, I'd like to hear. I'm sure the listeners would love to hear a little bit more about, yeah, what it was like back in D.C. In, in the 90s. Yeah, so I grew up on Capitol Hill in D.C. I um, was raised by my two parents. My mother is from Kentucky, from a dairy farm. My father is from uh, Iowa. He was raised in the restaurant industry as well as um, the hog farming industry. Um, so they, my dad was a Marine and my mom was in the CIA when they met down in Brazil and then they moved to DC and had me and raised me there. Uh, and then yeah, was kind of normal childhood of, uh, did the Catholic school route, uh, and went to an all girls Catholic school for high school and, then in my senior year of high school is when I kind of shook the boat with my parents when I discovered about uh, animal agriculture and its effects and decided to go vegetarian and then vegan. And uh, yeah, that was a fun little end of my, my growing up experience. So you said that was high school? That was my senior year of high school. High school. So it's a shame you weren't born in brazil i mean maybe you, you would have liked the spicy food <laughs> yeah if, oh, for if, sure. if you were if you were born there and brought up there but back to dc and yeah how did that go yeah coming so, home and did you just tell them flat out like hey i've learned some stuff and i'm gonna make this choice how did yeah. it work so i so i went vegetarian for environmental reasons i was looking i'm really numbers focused person and so i was looking into fact that you have to feed a cow 10 calories to get one calorie of beef in return and to me that's extremely inefficient and why do that unnecessarily and so I decided to go vegetarian and when I came home my dad was pissed because this was you know this was his world he was a meat and potatoes guy and he was the family cook so it was on him to <laughs> to help me transition and he was really upset about having to make two meals, um, which is always hilarious when you think back on it because you don't actually need to make two meals uh, because meat eaters can eat a vegetarian meal, but <laughs> it's a story for another day. Uh, so 
he was upset uh, that I was vegetarian. But then when two months later, um, I'm a pretty go big or go home person. And so vegetarianism was just too easy for me. And so I went vegan. And that was when he was extra pissed. Um, and he asked me to move out, uh, half jokingly, my mother then intercepted and said, Robert, what are you thinking? Um, but he was, he was real about the fact that he was upset about it and didn't think that it was a, yeah, didn't think it was a good choice. And what do you think was the major reason for his sadness or his frustration that you'd chosen this path do you think it was you know how he'd been brought up living on a hog farm in Iowa um, or a belief system that he'd built up over a long period of time I don't know yeah I'd say or was it the meals that he had to cook for sure I'd say the the practical uh, nature of it was the meals that he had to cook because it was just extra work Um, But when you think about a belief system that, you know, he had for his entire life, he had no problem uh, killing an animal, he had no problem uh, hunting, trapping, etc. And here I was, while I had gone vegetarian for the environment, I went vegan for animals. And here I was coming back and saying that killing an animal when you didn't need to was, you know, not not a thing I wanted to support and just like any meat eater I think that there's a level of defensiveness that comes when you kind of bring that up and I was also a very ineffective vegan at first I was very you know you're you're the curtain is lifted when I at least my curtain was lifted when I went vegan and I was just like oh wow why like why isn't everyone vegan now that I've gone clearly everyone needs to go and that's obviously just a very very silly way to think common common for sure but at the end of the day not you know not pragmatic and not effective and so I was yeah I was upset and I definitely definitely yelled at him some and he yelled at me some and yeah it was a it was a funny time and then I shortly after went to college and that's when when kind of his transition started to happen where um, I had wanted tattoos my entire life I thought they were really beautiful and then when I got into the punk scene and everyone had tattoos and they were gorgeous and I got into the anarchism scene, and that was a lot of fun to have political statements and have them, you know, written on your body. I told my dad, okay, I'm getting a tattoo, dad. Finally 18, finally out of the house. Love you. Bye. And he was not there. <laughs> uh, he, even though he was a Marine, he never got the Eagle Globe and Anchor on him. And he just said, hey, what do I need to do to make you not get a tattoo? And my dad and I had always stroken up deals. Uh, And so he went pescatarian in order for me to not get a tattoo for my college duration. And he thought, oh, she'll grow out of it after, after college. 
Um, and and he was he was happy to give up meat. <laughs> no, no, he was he was not happy to give up meat, but. It was worth more to him than you getting a tattoo? It was strangely worth more. I think at the time he was transitioning into being pescatarian, first of all, the deal I wanted to strike was for him to go vegetarian. But at the time, he thought he was going to retire on a boat and that he wanted to fish for the rest of his you know, retirement. So I was like, okay, dad, pescatarian. Um, but he had begun to look at some of the health benefits of vegetarianism and you know, a lot of his cop friends were, were dying, had, you know, different types of cancers. And so it started to, you know, the wheel started turning. So he was not pleased, but he was also, he was beginning. And then when I graduated college, I graduated in three years instead of four. I wanted to, I really wanted to start working. And so he, after three years, I was like, okay, uh, the deal's up. I'm graduating college I'm gonna go get a tattoo and he was like oh what do I need to do and I said well you could go vegan and he actually did so that was a really really cool day that I never expected in my wildest dreams when I first went vegan and he asked me to move out but it happened and now he is in love with veganism and is such an uh yeah such a passionate vegan it's really cool full circle yeah, that's very cool story. I don't think they get much cooler than that. Yeah, I, I said last time we met up, I'd love to chat with him. Like that is yeah. um, to get it from from his perspective as well. Um, to go from because we do build these, you know, kind of walls up in our minds of of what is and what we see is the way forward or the normal way and for him you know it doesn't get much more you know entrenched or you know normal that when you grow up with with hunting trapping um killing animals and it's you know an everyday thing more or less and then to come full circle and to be a passionate vegan on the back of a couple of deals done with your daughter Mm -hmm. about not getting a tattoo I mean, yeah, it's it's really cool. So, and he he came around to the so he his main passion was the health angle, and it's still very much uh, one of his main passions. But honestly, when when we when I graduated, and my my graduation gift um, that my parents gave me was to go to a farm sanctuary. So we actually went to Woodstock Farm Sanctuary, and I remember Jenny Brown gave my dad a tour, and. It was at that farm sanctuary that even though my dad had grown up around animals, he had never grown up with the lens of not eating them. Like, that just wasn't done. And so when Jenny was showing him the chickens, it just kind of clicked for him that, oh, we don't need to eat animals. It's not, you know, of course it's not a health requirement, but it's also not, you know, an ethical requirement. So it started to, the animal thing started to connect with him as well. Yeah, nice. I think farm sanctuaries can be a really powerful place for people to change their minds or at least trigger some kind of, you know, domino effect where maybe down the line they'll it'll click for them and they'll 100%. think back to a moment where they see a cow as a dog or a pig as a dog or, you know, 
I've seen a video of a turkey coming up to a man and kind of giving him a hug. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's yeah, it's stuff you don't expect when you're when you're so far away from it. When the only turkey you ever see is the one that's in the supermarket available, you know, for Thanksgiving dinner. If that's the only associate association you have, and then having an experience like that, I'm sure it can be a really powerful one to maybe make you think twice about what you're going to eat for Thanksgiving the the following year. I always think about holding a chicken. When I ate meat, I didn't think twice about how delicate a chicken is. But then I went to a farm and I I held this, this chicken and wow, it's delicate. It's, you know, you can easily break its wings or its legs, no problem if you're not careful. And just to think about, you know, with such disregard that factory farm farms have with chickens, it's kind of kind of crazy. Yeah, they're not looked after in any way, shape or form, yeah. really. Like they're the least... They've got the least pr- amount of protection. Protection. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I've seen the footage over and over again and it, it it's horrible. Yeah, what they what they have to endure is... Yeah, it's it's not it's not right, and I truly hope that we're moving forward. And you know, there's there's lots of things happening now that mean we absolutely don't have to go down that that route. And you're doing and have done since college a lot of work to you know to help animals and to help awareness uh, to to you know make healthier hospitals healthier schools you know you can you name it you've you've really (laughs) dabbled in it and 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 committed your life into yeah into into helping animals and and spreading this this vegan message in a really cool way mind you um so how have you yeah out of college where did you start and how have you started to begin this journey in uh, in working in this space yeah and deciding that this is going to be your life's work yeah yeah. That's yeah. So when I was at Boston University, I was the head of the BU Vegetarian Society, and I met Dave Komen Heidi from the Humane League. He's now the executive director of the Humane League, and we started working on a BU cage-free egg campaign. And simultaneously, we were working on the Harvard cage-free egg campaign, and we were going door to door, gathering signatures for it, and. When I first started working on it, I was pretty conflicted because I was at the very more ineffective stage of my veganism where I was really upset. And in my mind, I was like, oh, how can I support cage-free eggs? This is obviously not a, this is by no means a gold standard. Not a win for the animal. Not a win for the animal per se, but when you look at some of the studies that are around it of, you know, folks uh, decrease their their egg consumption. They also begin to, when you buy a quote-unquote humane, you know, humane certified egg or something, cage-free egg, you begin to associate yourself as being a more humane individual. When you do that, you then begin to align your beliefs with your actions down the line, and you're more likely to make that choice of leaving eggs off your plate. So when I kind of made more of those connections and read more studies around it, et cetera, made sense to 
to work on such campaigns and I, I fell in love with it so much, fell in love with leafleting on college campuses that I started working for the Humane League part-time and was their Boston coordinator. And then I graduated and took a job with them full-time as their Philadelphia director and absolutely loved it, organized the Philadelphia vegan scene and yeah, it's doing pretty okay right now. And then I moved to D.C. and I became the director of our National Campus Outreach Program and was there for, yeah, about two years working on uh, veganizing campuses across the U.S. And I just want to touch on one thing. Yeah. So I've been thinking about what you just said about the eggs. Yeah. So I've always kind of associated all the marketing jargon just as pure bullshit Mm -hmm. for you know no lack of a better term there really for making the the consumer feel good about their choice right totally and yeah it's a mask it's just masking the real the real problems behind the four walls of a factory farm or any farm but what you kind of just alluded to was that the consumer actually the more they purchase those products starts to align themselves as being a more humane person, which in turn decreases their egg consumption or can maybe leading to no egg consumption or leading down a more, uh, a more total humane path. Yeah. That's is, so is that kind of like in the end, the egg industry it's marketing the, themselves out of business. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the a very one, slow way to do it, but it's a very slow way to do it for sure. Because it's not as if, you know, one week you're buying cage free eggs, the next week you're right. vegan. But it is the silver lining to the cage free egg movement. Uh, it's mm. a it's a silver lining that I never thought about before. And I've never looked at it that way. So it is interesting hearing that perspective. Yeah, it's definitely it's it's a positive spin a silver lining on what i'd seen as a very blatant obvious negative kind of tactic from that industry yeah so yeah sorry for interrupting but i had to bring that i was very interested in that so thanks for bringing that up that's um that's a cool way to look at it but yeah so you went and did the yeah. The campus outreach stuff, which was also pretty cool. I loved it. It was We were training advocates around the country and paying them to do advocacy on their campuses. And I met so many dedicated students and so many dedicated clubs on, on different campuses. I really fell in love with a, a, lot, of, a lot of the students. So I then uh, decided that the campus program was in really capable hands with my co-workers at the Humane League. We had built up a, a campus outreach team and I decided to move on from THL and I got a call from the New York City Mayor's office, Mayor de Blasio's office, and was asked to come up for an interview and came up and decided to go with it. And uh, I was the animal welfare liaison for Mayor de Blasio for about a year and a half and I loved it. There's there's a lot there um, because yeah, there's, there's a lot there to, to unpack. Um, but then uh, I recently, about 
almost six months ago, moved over to the Brooklyn Borough President's Office and have been loving it. So that's a brief synopsis. <laughs> yeah, that's a really cool snapshot of, you know, your path to, to where you are today. With the, the role that you had with the New York City Mayor's Office, do you want to go into that a little bit more? And I believe you were the only one yeah. in the country that had such a title at a, at a mayor's office in the United States, which is, that's pretty amazing, being yeah. the, the only person that's having this impact at that level in the country. So what kind of projects were you working on? Um, yeah, and what were, you, what, what were some of your big wins while you were, while you were working there? Yeah, so the position was is very unique. It is the only uh, animal welfare liaison position in the country. That said, if anyone listening wants to get it into their mayor's office, I have a one-pager that I would love to send you that kind of goes over some of the, the tasks and the background that someone needs to have. How does someone contact you? They can contact uh, <laughs> We were just talking about how effective DMs were on Instagram. So on Instagram, I'm xvxrachel. Um, or my yeah my email address is just rachelatchison at gmail.com. So there we go. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, if um, the animal welfare liaison position, I was the second person in that position. The previous person had um, been there for about a year and a half, almost two years, and uh, he was then promoted, and I I entered uh, the sphere. And then when I left, uh, another woman took my position as well. So. It continues, and uh, I'm really, really excited about what she's going to going to accomplish for animals as well. So, some of the main projects I'd work on. First of all, when you think animals in New York City, sometimes you might just think of companion animals, dogs and cats. But New York has a wildlife scene like you would not believe. So, there's interesting projects like a deer vasectomy program going on in Staten Island right now where they've vasectomized over a thousand deer uh, so that it's the it's probably the largest humane non-lethal deer management program in the country and then we'd work on companion animal stuff as well um, so the supporting the city's uh, animal shelter the one of the largest open admission animal shelters in the country taking in around 30,000 animals a year and they do fantastic work. They're called Animal Care Centers of N NYC. And they've got about a 93% live release rate. So 93% of animals are either being adopted out directly or working through their partners to be adopted out. And so supporting them, uh, making sure that they're receiving as much funding as they, they can receive through city council and through the mayor's office, et cetera. And then I also, coming from the farm animal scene, I brought in the meat reduction angle into the position as well. Now, a lot of people in the mayor's office were kind of skeptical of, hey, what is the animal person doing with food? <laughs> they did not understand that there's some sort of overlap with animals and food. I don't know. It's, uh, escapes could, me. could you explain that? Yeah, so I, I mean, they, they people think of food and they don't necessarily think only of meat but sadly because the standard american diet consists so much of meat when you talk about food you're usually talking largely about meat so obviously <laughs> meat comes from animals but that 
was not exactly a lot of people's like first thought. So people were confused that I wanted to work on that. Did that open your eyes to really how disconnected we are? Were you maybe a little bit more positive before learning this or were you you were half expecting it? I was pretty much expecting it. When I traveled across the country, I gave talks about factory farming. And, you know, in a vegan echo chamber, we can think, oh, everyone knows about factory farming. But folks don't really know. They might think that a slaughterhouse is a bad place, but they don't really have any details. They don't they don't really know what a factory farm is. They don't know how many animals are on a factory farm. They don't know that there's no individual vet attention, things like that. So I think that always got me out of the echo chamber and being in the mayor's office where I was definitely one of, you know, five to 10 vegans, uh, you know, that I was also very much out of the echo chamber. And so it, it made sense to me that they would have a hard time. Um, but I also got more pushback than I thought I would. So it was really fortuitous that I uh, met Borough President Eric Adams and um, was asked to join his team to work exclusively on on healthy food initiatives in the plant-based space. So what kind of pushback are we talking about? Are you trying to change the the menu or what what motions were you proposing? So I really, my, and to get back to your earlier question of what the victories were, so mm. my, the two victories that I'm most proud of in that, that time of working in the mayor's office was, one, we banned um, wild animals in the circus. So you can no longer come into New York City and, um, and, and bring in those wild animals um, and then my second victory was Meatless Monday. So we actually, through the push that I was able to accomplish, um, we were able to have a Meatless Monday pilot project go on in 15 Brooklyn schools. So that was fantastic. But I definitely received some pushback of, hey, w- you know, why? Why do this? Um, the animal community had largely been fighting against the horse carriage industry, and that was a battle that did not end uh, as well as the animal advocates um, we would have liked. So, folks were definitely there was there was heat on all sides, and folks were just not thinking that this was something that the animal advocacy community wanted. Even though I think. More and more, we're seeing that you know animal advocates are very happy when when folks are reducing their meat consumption. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the horse carriage thing is still an ongoing thing. Am I? I think I saw maybe during the week um, a horse that got taken away to a a vet clinic. Yeah, had the, had died after having a, an accident in the city. Yeah, I think uh, actually in the last couple weeks, two horses were put down. Um, the horse carriage industry uh, is a very visceral one for the city. Obviously, where you know you're in a city where one of the tourist snapshots is a, a horse carriage ride, and there are a couple hundred horses in the city, um, and it's an industry that I anticipate will eventually 
you know, die just like um, other industries that become outdated, such as, you know, Ringling Brothers signaling the downfall of circuses by, by going out of, out of business. Um, yeah. Yeah. And with the Meatless Monday, yeah, to, to get the pushback and the, I suppose the disconnection, it can be frustrating, but yeah, it's a huge win to, to get that into schools yeah. as the school system here, again, not growing up in America, not experiencing it, not really totally understanding it, but having heard a little bit about it, it's in a situation where, you know, some of the worst foods are what these kids are eating on a daily basis. So to have one day a week where, you know, they come to school and get to experience Meatless Mondays, has that, have you seen a big impact? So the impact, if we look at the numbers, the impact can be pretty apparent in, in the pure sense of, Meat used to be on the plates of 7,500 students, and now Meatless Monday in that 15-school pilot has taken meat off the plate of 7,500 students' plate, which is fantastic. In terms of in terms of impact, in terms of school food, school food is a very difficult situation. I mean, with New York City, we serve about a million meals a day which is a crazy amount of coordination. <laughs> uh, we, the amount of coordination between the different menus, so there's different, there's a vegetarian menu that about four schools are using right now. There's a quote unquote regular menu. There's an alternative menu that has a few more plant-based days. Um, and then there's different allergen menus and et cetera. So the amount of coordination that has to go into the food prep and into transportation and into whether or not a school actually has a kitchen because some schools aren't built for that. So there's a lot of moving parts as well as, you know, the actual ingredients, which sometimes you're talking about, quote unquote, you know, 100% beef. Other times you're talking about, you know, how do we get ripe tomatoes into the salad bar? there's just a lot of moving pieces. So school food is such a tricky subject that I'm a very goal-oriented person and it is it is one of the more challenging things that I deal with. Just waking up and knowing, okay, so I want to work on this issue, but the path forward is so complex. So here is it is it normal cuz growing up I think it was really normal for, for kids to bring their own lunch to school most days of the week. They might purchase from... I mean, it's different for, different for a lot of families, but it was definitely normal to bring your own food to school. And if you, know, you had to buy lunch uh, a couple of days a week, you might get money from your parents to go and do that. Here, is it more mandatory that you kind of go to school and you get a lunch? How does it work for those people that might not be familiar with the American system? So a nonprofit here actually helped push the city in a positive direction by offering universal uh, free school lunch. So one of the problems with uh, a program called uh, Free and Reduced is that you had different tiers of people who some students who were financially, um, sh- financially challenged got free lunch, but then others who were quote-unquote, less financially challenged, would get reduced lunch. 
so you had all these stigmas that go along with it and you know students sometimes wouldn't eat because they would potentially be made fun of for not having money and stuff like that so a wonderful book on this topic is a book called oh something the state of the national school free for all the state of the national school lunch program and it kind of goes into some of these stigmas but now that we have universal free lunch anyone can go in and anyone can get lunch at no cost so people we have about 1.1 million students about a million meals are served a day so most folks are actually buying quote-unquote the lunch Um, a lot of parents though who might have the resources might have the time definitely send lunch in with their kids I receive emails all the time about parents who wish that the school lunch program was better and wish they didn't have to spend the time making a lunch for their kid it's a it's a difficult situation yeah for sure for sure something i've also come across is like mandatory dairy yeah and things like that which is coming from a more government kind of position yeah that is standard in fact standard across the entire 50 states um where the reimbursement program it is required that students be given milk even you know let's (laughs) even with the high lactose intolerancy that many students have especially students of color you will have a requirement and to overcome that requirement you actually have to bring in essence um, a doctor's note um, a which is is a little frustrating so Mm. oftentimes students will just take the milk and then throw it out if they're lactose intolerant other kids don't know they're lactose intolerant so they'll drink the milk and suffer the consequences later one thing that i've worked on now is we recently sent a letter to the new chancellor outlining a few of the things that we want changed within school food. And one is just to put water dispensers right next to where the milk is distributed. Because if students are given the option to drink milk, many students will, or sorry, many students will drink water. And that's something that right now, you know, you might have a water fountain at the other end of the cafeteria and uh, no cups with it, etc. So we are asking a very simple thing of hey put the water where kids can see it and yeah we're excited about a very small step in the right direction you're receiving any pushback with that or is it something that you can see happening a little smoother than maybe some other projects you've worked on so we have outlined a few things within that letter to the chancellor one is a phasing out of processed meats from school food. So the WHO has reported that um, processed meats are a type one carcinogen. So they're in the same class as cigarettes. And yet we are still feeding our kids something that, you know, we ban uh, in other places. So that is right now a city council resolution where we've not only sent a letter to school food, but we've also pushed this into city council And that is where we're receiving pushback because it's, it is a, 
a bigger ask. I mean, we're talking about changing several contracts and changing contracts in city government is not exactly the easiest thing to do. So receiving a little bit of pushback, not a ton. And, you know, when you frame it as, do you want to be giving your kids cigarettes? You know, it it is a (laughs) easier sell, Um, but definitely more, more pushback than, you know, we in our kind of echo chamber like to think. Right. Yeah. I've spoken about that on previous episodes, whether it's the, the echo chamber we create ourselves on social media or the echo chamber we have in our social circles, in mm-hmm. our daily lives. It's very easy to get lost in uh, this vegan kind of world that we can create for ourselves and not see the, the outside world and what's really going on and where we probably need to um, lend more resources to and, and, and helping yeah, change some of our old practices such as the school lunch program. Yeah, it sounds super difficult. You're doing some really, you know, important work there. Is there any way to educate families and and start to get some, some momentum from them? Because obviously government tends to be, you know, a slower process that, you know, getting getting things cleared by them and you are dealing with large contracts that have existed for... Uh, you know, potentially decades. Um, yeah, is there any momentum we can gain by educating or, you know, can we educate parents and, and children outside of the, the school program? So we recently sent home a letter to all the parents uh, of every Brooklyn student. So we in Brooklyn have about 572 public and charter schools. I sent out a letter from the borough president to all the principals and have asked them to send it out with their their students. And so I received uh, a couple emails today from some some parents uh, who had received the email over uh, a scanned copy of, of the letter over email. And I'm definitely trying to kind of figure out how to harness uh, a lot of their energy there already are a couple kind of pathways set up. So for instance, there are wellness councils where parents can join, usually parent coordinators or a member on staff will set it up and they'll work on a project such as getting a a community garden set up or something along those lines. I have not figured out the best path forward in harnessing that. And uh, I mean, honestly, this is something where Hey, listeners, if you have, have brilliant ideas on harnessing, I would love to hear them. Um, right now, I think we are trying to direct parents' attention to the fact that um, the Office of School Food is looking for a new executive director. And so trying to point parents toward asking for that new executive director to be a little bit more focused on what is the most nutritional meal nutritionally dense meal that we can give our students and thankfully in terms of plants you know the plant (laughs) plants are usually the most nutritionally dense and so you will typically end up with a a plant-based meal but it's not I I haven't cracked the code yeah some of the some of the things you've been working on are things that intrigue me now Um, yeah quite a lot and I do remember the first time we met at the, the Ivy League 
uh, vegan conference that you got me into at Harvard last year, which was, it was a really good few days. Got to hear a lot of cool speakers, but I do remember one of our first conversations was about Meatless Mondays. And at this point, I think I'd only been vegan for a couple of months, very health conscious, health minded, whole food plant-based, didn't really stray too far from that. And I thought Meatless Mondays were a little bit of a, a cop-out. Cop yeah. <laughs> and yeah, for anyone that is listening that might resonate with what I used to think, I can understand it. You think like, oh, one day a week, there's seven days. Come on, we can do better <laughs> than that. But when you really dig in and see where, where we're at in a real life format, such as what we've just been talking about, you can see the importance of the role it has to play and how effective it can be and getting people on this path. So yeah, for anyone out there, I just wanted to say that, you know, if you are thinking, oh, Meatless Mondays, you know, it's a bit weak. I, c I can understand that, but I hope we've brought yeah. the importance of it to light and you can start to, to resonate with the importance of it a, yeah, a little I, bit more. And I think as I have been more exposed to more and more Brooklyn residents who come, we host a, a quarterly vegan and veg curious meetup and we put on different uh, different programs within each one. And as I meet more and more people who, you know, their two jobs strapped for cash, um, busy, 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 caring for caring for three kids. I mean, when you think about them and going quote unquote cold turkey, and think about something that is a little more realistic. I think setting aside one day and being like, okay, so on that day, really try, really try and, you know, make meals that you're excited about and are delicious, et cetera. I think you're going to have a lot easier of a sell with saying, hey, do this once a week than you are with, hey, are you ready to make that time commitment? Now, of course, you yeah. know, I've been vegan now for eight years. I don't think it's a time commitment at all, but that's because I've gotten in the habit of it exactly we're we're habitual people and yeah one day a week is i think a commitment most people given the food is tasty will be happy to oblige to and it, yeah it's it's the start it's the catalyst of something for them um yeah and i i really do think it's a it's an awesome program so it was cool to hear about yeah you've got a lot of passion for that yeah and, I love it. and you've done a lot of work there. So thank you. Thank you for that. Now, your new role, Brooklyn Borough President, Eric Adams, pretty cool guy. <laughs> He's had some exposure with his story over the last few months, which has been really cool to hear. Pretty amazing to hear. Yeah. If you want to go into yeah, what he went through briefly and then, you know, I'd love to hear about some of the work you've done some of the work you had been doing we weren't really allowed to release right, right. <laughs> so on the last episode that i lost so i'm happy Which that we can, we can now release it yeah. because it's out there but yeah i'd love to hear some um yeah some of eric's story yeah so about two and a half years ago in early 2016 the borough president uh, i call him bp so bp 
was diagnosed with a pretty severe case of type 2 diabetes, so severe that he was blind in his left eye. He had tingling in his fingers and toes. He then discovered both Dr. Greger's How Not to Die, the audiobook, and then he also went out to the Cleveland Clinic and met up with uh, Dr. Esselstyn. So when he kind of learned about the healing power of plants, he decided to go full in and went whole food plant-based, no salt, oil, sugar, and he got his sight back in three weeks. And in three months, he had no more tingling, no more nerve damage. Uh, He reversed the diabetes. In seven months, he had lost 35 pounds. I mean, he is truly a poster child of what a plant-based diet can do if done in in a healthy way. So his story led him to, and his journey led him to have a passion to just provide people with the information. He always says that, you know, it's not your... Doctors had told him it was your DNA, but he says it's not your DNA, it's your dinner. And it's it's so true that we are so often poised to be the hopeless victim mm. as opposed to the empowered individual. And so now he provides information. And he hired me a little bit ago to manage his, his healthy eating portfolio And since then, we've been able to do some really cool projects. So a couple months ago, we announced, um, so two months ago, we announced the launch of a plant-based lifestyle medicine program at Bellevue Hospital, the country's, the city's oldest hospital. And it's a publicly funded clinic. So it is a $400,000 investment into the city, into plant-based nutrition which is fantastic. So that clinic is opening up within the next month or two, and Dr. Michelle McMacken is leading that, and I am so excited. It's going to be studied by uh, NYU, and I'm pretty optimistic about the, the uh, report uh, that it will show that, you know, unbelievably, we can reverse some of these chronic diseases like heart disease and type 2 diabetes. And then I expect that that we'll probably push for it to be in more hospitals across the city. And with the publicly funded hospitals, it's a pretty good model because public hospitals want to save money. With private hospitals, it's a little bit more of an uphill battle because their um, their mandate is not to save money. Their mandate is to make money. Mm. Um, but um, I'm pretty optimistic that it'll spread. Yeah, it's another interesting, I suppose area there's you know different roadblocks private you're probably going to see more roadblocks yeah Uh, i think they come to light in one of kip's movies i think it was what What the the health Health. it was definitely what the health where he he's having a conversation with a woman outside of a hospital and she's explaining the reason that he can't film or get an interview with someone inside the hospital and she just point blank says we make money off of surgeries, something along the lines of that. Yeah. So you can definitely see one side of it, but the other side of it is what Michelle McMacken is doing and yeah, what you're able to do with, with this investment and why it's so important for hospitals to, to be able to do this because we're taking care of people in hospitals, right? 
we we should be taking care of people yeah, in so hospitals. What what are we used to seeing in hospitals when when people get you know a meal after surgery? Exactly. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of competing factors, and if you you kind of look at the the macro level, you've got so you've got public hospitals who their mandate is to save money to get people out of the hospital. You've got private hospitals. Then you have the pharmaceutical industry who wants to sell their their drugs. Um, but then you've got the healthcare industry that wants people to have fewer and fewer surgeries. So you have a lot of different clashes. And I'm really excited to see the day when, you know, we can just mark that, hey, we're eating a, a plant-based diet and our healthcare is a little bit cheaper because we're sick less. <laughs> that will be a, a nice day. But it is a it is a a hard system. I mean, it's it's a monumental task to change the healthcare industry, which is right now more of a sick care industry than a health. I mean, we our medical system is very reactive instead of preventative. So we're at a, a fairly low point in history for nutrition, I feel like. I mean, doctors only in about a fourth of all medical schools are ever given a course on nutrition. So we're at a fairly low point in history, which just means that right now there's more opportunity to for growth. Um, but that's me trying to see the positive in, in, in our low point in history. No, I definitely, I like that. Like <laughs> we, we need to see the opportunity move forward and, and go for it. Um, but to, yeah, to hear something like that, it's, it's huge. It's, it's the catalyst for, for something big. I feel more hospitals can, to, can learn from, yeah from what happens, implement, you know, similar systems and that's where it starts right that's where the the ball starts to roll so i'm pretty stoked that that's that's gone through and yeah to see the results of of what happens yeah it'll be it'll be exciting i mean this is the first publicly funded there have been some private clinics so for instance the barnard uh, clinic down in dc has been having tremendous results but this will be it's so interesting what different governments pay attention to so for instance our department of health looks to the National Institutes of Health for Dietary Recommendations. So right now, uh, our Department of Health, DOHMH, is looking toward NIH for recommendations against hypertension, and they're recommending the DASH diet, which is, you know, a lot of fruits and vegetables for sure, but then also low-fat dairy and up to, you know, so many ounces of chicken and fish and stuff like that. So it's interesting to think, okay, so our Department of Health has not funded any sort of studies in the plant-based nutrition nutrition sphere so they're going to look at Bellevue and I'm super excited to see them kind of study something that their government is sanctioning we'll see how it goes yeah that's awesome that's really cool um I suppose yeah with with what you've seen and 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 what you've uh, you've worked with so far what is really exciting you right now in this vegan movement and yeah what you kind of see yeah the future holding so i'm really excited about the marketplace for alternative products and clean meat so clean meat is for for those who don't know it's uh it is real meat it's made from animal cells but it is made without the actual animal, without the nervous system of an animal. And so it has the potential of 
really disrupting our food system in a very positive way. Because right now there are definitely, you know, several members of my extended family who no matter how beneficial of them eating a vegan diet would be, they're just not gonna. And I don't think I will ever be able to convince some of them to eat a veggie burger. But I do think that if the price is low enough, if the uh, if clean meat is convenient, if it is the exact same taste as the meat that they're used to, I see a world in which we could change those dietary habits to to adopt clean meat. So I'm really excited about that. I'm excited about the plant-based space as well. I mean, right now I think alternative milks are about 11% of the market, which is an unbelievable. It's why, you know, it's why the FDA is calling for public comment about soy milk versus dairy milk and and <laughs> should we be it's... calling soy milk milk? It's very very funny. We're actually submitting public comment for it. I'm excited about it. It's frustrating like people know. <laughs> but like, do they? But do, Who knows? Yeah, we, we must survey this. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it it it's pretty clear, guys. Come on. <laughs> I mean like yeah. Soy, almond, <laughs> macadamia, they're not animals. Like yeah. we, we, we know that those types of milks do not if, come from an animal. If anything, I hope that all of this will just spark more public interest. Yes. In, yep. So, I mean, just like, for instance, when Hampton Creek was being sued by Hellman's, it sparked enormous interest in Hampton Creek. And it was actually probably mm. one of the best things that happened to them at the beginning. And... You know, then Hellman's launched their own vegan mayo. I mean, it was it's a funny situation, but I think that it brought around conversations of, hey, why does this mayonnaise company want that like them not to be called mayo? What like mm. what are they doing? So I think that that is what is happening with milk. But I mean, it's the dairy industry; it's pretty low. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, just talking out loud about it with the eggs as well. It sounds like even this public debate, this forum that animal agriculture companies or mayonnaise companies or you know meat companies, when they bring it to the public, it's almost a negative for them. Yeah, it's they're fighting really hard. People are picking up on this. It's bringing the plant-based alternative into scope. And people are learning about it and it's, you know, it's widening their lens on, on what's available. So I don't know if it's actually doing them any favors. They right. would probably be better off concentrating on their own product or they're just fighting a downhill battle. We're just going down, you know, the, the, the plant-based alternative route. And I think it's kind of the, it's kind of another version of ag-gag laws where ag-gag was... Those are laws that try and prohibit undercover whistleblower um, factory farm workers to not put out photos or videos of their time working in a factory farm. And, you know, it is one of the better things to happen to the animal movement because the attention that's been drawn to undercover investigators um, and whistleblowers has been tremendous. So, you know, hey, animal agriculture wants to keep shooting itself in the foot. I'm, I'm not, <laughs> not too opposed. Yeah, we do live in a bizarre world with those ag-gag laws. Like, you can go to prison for saving a pig. Yeah. That's, like, been put on the kill pile or 
I don't know what the, the terms are, but you know, a dying animal, you save it. It seems pretty damn humane to me. <laughs> but then on the other side, you can slaughter tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, billions, billions of animals and get paid for it. So we are living in a very, in a, in a weird time, but you know, we can definitely see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're making a lot of progress. And yeah, if animal agriculture are contributing to that, then, then so be it. I mean, at the end of the day, they are probably helping our cause more than they would, would like or hope by, I, by the actions that they're taking. I always wonder who their strategists are. I think yeah. that there are some amazing strategists, for instance, in the Got Milk campaign. I mean, those folks were brilliant. If we could have their marketing firms, I totally would. <laughs> but then you've got you know other versions of strategy that have just backfired. So it's interesting. Well, I think then they were at the peak of their powers, let's say. They're doing a good job marketing. They have marketed extremely well and effectively. But it's now under a little bit of pressure that we're seeing the defense come out. So, as you said before, as an example, your father probably got, you know, defensive because it's against what he knows and it's, a, it's, it's against the way he's always done it. And... Rachel, I don't want to cook two meals out of the house. I suppose this is kind of the same thing, you know, in a way. You can draw parallels where, you know, beyond meat have meat in their name. Almond milk, macadamia milk have milk in their name. The cheese companies have cheese in their name. And these companies are coming at them and asking, you know, the FDA to have rules around what can be called meat, what can be called milk and what can be called cheese. But all it's really doing is bringing the plant products into the head, uh, the headlights and, and the headlines. Um, and I think they're, yeah, they're probably not doing themselves any favors now because a defensive strategy, it, it, I don't know. I don't think it's going to work for them. There is a really cool, just in opposition of the, the Got Milk campaign, there's a really cool small nonprofit that has uh, that has just gained some more momentum uh, it's called switch for good and dotsy mm. um one of Bouch. the yeah yep. one of the folks in the movie game changers which oh my god i'm so excited we're all about. waiting we're well, all waiting the avatar cast was just uh screened it uh yesterday or the huh. day before i'm so excited about it yeah everyone's Everyone's waiting for that film. <laughs> like it's been, it feels like it's been forever, but I can't yeah. wait to watch it. It's yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to be, be a cool one. But, but anyway, yeah. so Dotsy launched uh, Switch for Good, and they had a really cool commercial uh, of folks who athletes, pro athletes, mm. who were saying, you know, I've gotten where I am because I don't drink milk, and it was a really cool commercial that that I forget where it aired, but it aired somewhere um, with a lot of folks Did watching. It air? It didn't air on the Super Bowl, did it? I don't think it aired on the Super Bowl, but I, it was something kind of under that. Something large. Yeah. I do recall the ad, and Dotsie's an Olympian herself, so she's a really good voice for... She's um, a badass. Yeah, for animals and... Yeah, and plants. <laughs> but one of my previous guests, Garrett Kenyon, he's an athlete, 
he's the guy I was speaking to before. He knows Gene Bauer. Oh, yeah. Um, and has worked with him previously. But he was invited out to LA for oh, the, the Switch for the Good. the summit or... Yeah, yeah, they had an event and he, he said it was awesome. Yeah. So yeah. it's really cool to see athletes getting behind it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really cool space an evolving space i know you've got that chart up at home of yes. like all the the clean protein all the companies and, yeah 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 it's getting pretty cool you know we're, we're we, we could see it on the market 2019 i i think it's possible that just previously hampton creek just foods are going to introduce foie gras i think that was the first thing they were talking about i'm not sure if it's still on the table so I think they might introduce it internationally. That's the last thing that I heard uh, Josh yep. Tetrick say. So um, he said that at the the Good Food Conference, the Good Inf- in- the Good Food Institute is one of my favorite mm. nonprofits, and they put on an amazing conference last month in the Bay Area. And Josh was one of the speakers and was speaking about it. And I'm super excited for the launch, but I do think they're going to start internationally which will allow them to kind of overcome some of the regulatory hurdles that yep. we still have not fully figured out here. Yeah, but it's cool to see it happening because yes. one of my questions to you and concerns, because I know you're really excited by it, I've read a couple of couple of books now on it. I read Kathy Freston's Clean Protein um, and Paul Shapiro's Clean Meat. Both really interesting kind of weird to wrap your head around it sounds like a little (laughs) sci-fi yeah um well it was weird also i mean when i was first talking to josh balk about founding hampton creek five six years ago now i you know josh would josh was saying yeah it's gonna it's gonna you know really rock the the egg industry world and i was like josh what are you talking about well you can't have mayonnaise made from another (laughs) another source (laughs) And now look what, you know, look what yeah. Just was able to do. And I think same with clean meat. I mean, if you had told me five years ago that we'd be this close to launching clean meat, I would have said you're crazy, but I think we're really close. That's cool. That's cool. Cause my only question was the scale. Like scale is, is going to be an issue. I mean, the three things that clean meat needs to accomplish is taste, affordability, and uh, convenience. Mm-hmm. So to get to that affordability marker, I mean, we are going to need some more science because the science right now, there's still uh, issues with scaffolding. And, you know, if anyone, again, if anyone's listening, I love crowdsourcing. So if anyone's listening and is a stem cell biologist or, you know, does something in the realm of building cells, uh, I think it's a good time to insert yourself into mm. the, the clean meat movement. So scaffolding as well as what media it's being grown in. I mean, it can't forever be grown in uh, fetal bovine serum. So there's definitely some, some scientific hurdles that, that they need to overcome before mm. it'll get to scale. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm all for it. There's no doubt about it. Helping the, the possibility of how many animals it can help is yeah. huge. Because as you said, if it tastes the same, it's affordable, but it doesn't kill any animals. I mean, it's it's a no-brainer, right? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, no-brainer. it's a no-brainer. I will say it's very interesting working in the health space now because to me it's a no-brainer for environmental concerns. Mm-hmm. It's a no-brainer for animal concerns. But it 
is a little bit of a puzzle in terms of health because what people love about meat isn't the flesh per se, it's the fat. And so when we're building clean meat, we have to build fat. We have to build, you know, versions of cholesterol, versions of saturated fat. And so from a health perspective, we can build clean meat the way we want to, so we can definitely make it healthier. You know, there's no growth hormones added, et cetera. But we we can't make it as healthy as a plant. I mean, yep. a plant is the gold standard of what I want people to be eating. Um, but I also, you know, being realistic, I think that's where my love of clean meat comes into play. And so I'm, it is, it's not a clear cut from the, from the health perspective. Um, but again, I think it's just being more of a prag- pragmatist. It makes total sense. I think we need to come from all angles. So it might not tick all the boxes as well as plants do, but it certainly is going a, a long way yeah. to, to helping. 100%. Yeah, to helping the planet, to helping animals. Yeah. And to, well, we'll see. It might somewhat help our health. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, right now I donate, um, I donate 10% of my salary. It's a, a part of this movement that I, I very much enjoy called the Effective Altruism Movement. And uh, about half of my donations right now are going to uh, the Good Food Institute. Oh, so, that's really cool. Yeah. I knew you I knew you did that. I heard it was maybe a little bit more than ten percent. So Yeah, did you say that you were you yeah, were upping it? I yeah. so I've upped it to about twelve percent. Um, but I like to I'm I'm now being more conservative in what I am putting out there. So I'm now saying ten percent. Um, cool. As, yeah, you do live in New York definite. City, so I mean, I, I completely understand. <laughs> yeah, but actually, it's interesting because I'm donating 10% of my gross, which ends up being about 20% of my net because my <laughs> uh, the yeah taxes are just so so high here, which is good. Uh, at the end of the day, I want our public schools and our roads to be as good as they can be. So happy about it, but double-edged sword. Yeah, it definitely is. But you're doing amazing things to. You know, to give up that, put it toward things that you love, to work for, you know, companies or, you know, organizations that you really can get behind and you clearly love your work. So I think you're, you know, a really inspiring person for people to to know that they can get into and really work on something that they uh, hold true to their heart. So do you have any, everyone's different but everyone's in a different position as well. But do you have any tips of how, you know, people that, you know, might be working in something they don't love and they do have passions that they would like to pursue, you know, what are some ways that we can start to, to dip our feet and, and, and get started there? So I think for the beginning of the animal protection movement, and that, that is the movement that I, I am most familiar with. For the beginning of that movement, we were largely interested in getting very passionate people, very dedicated generalists. And so for a while, you know, anyone could work in, in the field of animal protection. And indeed, anyone can in the sense of, you know, volunteering and interning. But we are now at a space where we need specialists. So we need graphic designers. We need computer programmers. We need you know, X, Y, and Z. And and especially it's so cool being able to work in the animal protection space by being a stem cell biologist. Like that's amazing. 
so I think anyone who has a specialized skill, you know, who is looking to kind of crack into the movement, I'd say don't think you need to necessarily give up what you work on now. It just might be in a little bit of a different format. Alternatively, there are some folks who do earn to give. So they might be in a really high paying position and they might be able to donate a significant portion of their their salary. I had someone stay with me earlier this week and he is a little bit more on the shy side. And so he is not as uh, interested in working in the nonprofit space, but he donates about 50,000 a year. So he, in essence, pays for someone to work in the nonprofit space um, while Mm. he doesn't directly himself. So there are a lot of ways to get involved. I mean, there's always volunteering and there's always, you know, being a part of the um, different nonprofits, you know, action alert groups and stuff like that. Um, So I think anyone who wants to get involved can just might take some creativity in finding out exactly Mm. where to plug you in. Yeah, that's very cool to hear. Yeah, different perspectives. You're full of different perspectives. I like that. (laughs) being a high earner and having the ability to essentially pay for someone's salary in, in a position. That's huge. Um, yeah, that's really cool. So if, yeah, if any of you are out there that are looking to, to move, that advice I think is, is really cool. Um, you can have transferable skills that are needed by animal protection groups or you know, clean meat groups, food groups, yeah, it's it's definitely an evolving, um, an evolving market, which is really, uh, really good time to yeah to to be able to out of work in this space. One last thing, I think you've you've had a lot of experience in in talking to you know to people that you know they're not vegetarian, they're not flexitarian, they're not thinking about making changes to their diet. You're obviously passionate about it. And they're interested, I'm assuming. I've, I've met, you know, lots of Uber drivers that are yeah. interested oh, that I, I do a podcast or they're interested <laughs> that, you know, I'm, I'm going to a, a food expo or whatever it might be. And you always get on the topic of, um, of veganism in some way, shape or form. Um, yeah, what is, what is your typical approach to you know to keeping people interested and and not scaring them off because as you alluded to earlier often in our early vegan days we can be very uh, full-on yeah if my parents were to walk through the door (laughs) right now they would tell you that i was pretty full-on when i when i decided to switch it up but yeah have you got an approach what are some maybe an interesting story i don't know but yeah, give us yeah. give us some tips there. So one, a couple couple of my favorite books in in this space are a new book uh, that Tobias Leonard put out called um, How to Create a Vegan World, and I absolutely love it. Uh, that book, as well as um, the Animal Activist Handbook, written by Bruce Friedrich and Matt Ball, as well as um, yeah, just other, other studies that have shown that the foot-in-the-door technique works so well. So my foot-in-the-door technique is always to definitely, in some shape or form, mention it and then kind of leave it out there. 
and not necessarily pursue it. So, you know, if someone says, oh, you know, why are you vegan? My usual response is one or two sentences. So something like, well, I, I learned that factory farming wasn't something I wanted to participate in financially. And so I decided to, to leave meat off my plate. And then I end it there. I don't go on a rant. I don't elaborate a, a ton because if the person is interested, they'll ask questions. But if they're not interested, you are more likely to push them away if you continue you know, on that rant. So even, even in kind of the nicest voice possible and you know, as calm a voice as possible, you can still push people away so my goal is to mention it. If they're interested, they'll ask. If not, there's a thousand other topics to talk about and topics that you know make people a better person in other ways. So mm-hmm. um, I, I'm a big foot in the door person. Yeah, I like it. I wish I had learned that a little earlier. I but mean, it's, me I too. Mean, so. I, think, I think we all... <laughs> It is a fun, it's a common thing I see where people, yeah, there is some, I wouldn't call it aggression. I think people are coming from a good place, but it's just very in your face. Mm-hmm. You know, like our minds kind of just don't understand why everyone doesn't want to do it. And it's, you know, yeah, hard to believe that, yeah, people wouldn't decide it. But you do learn that it ends up pushing them away. There's no doubt about that. Um, I think I experienced that myself. Um, it's a cool... I still... I, I don't think I've managed to get it quite the as... one sentence. <laughs> ...good as, as what you, you just said there. But it's something I can work towards myself. It's a really cool way to start the conversation. I'm, I'm sure you've had ones that have ended. And I'm sure you've had ones that have gone on a lot... Uh, I got gone on a lot longer than that, and I don't know. You've probably made some pretty big impacts yeah. with, well, with and, some small conversations. And it's also not about you talking a ton. Uh, it's also about asking mm-hmm. questions in back. You know, oh well, you know, what was your relationship uh, growing up with you know animals around you? Oh, you know, have you considered X, Y, or Z? Oh, have you eaten a meatless meal recently? I mean, all of these are kind of prodding questions that make that person think introspectively which you know we people like to answer questions um you must know that being being someone who i was gonna i was just gonna say i was just gonna say you would be a very good podcast host i know i would love i would love that um so you know people like to answer questions so they they want to but then put yourself in the other person's shoes Mm. and you recognize okay I need to leave space for them to, you know, think and talk and generate content. I mean, people, people at the end of the day like to hear themselves speak. So give them an opportunity to, to think, hey, why do I do the things that I do? Yeah, they might be able to talk themselves into... Exactly. Or they'll trip over themselves, yeah. more or less. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a, I think it's a fantastic way to look at it. Uh, does a lot more... A lot more help that way. It really nurtures someone into to thinking a little differently or seeing, you know, what they're doing in a different light. Because it is hard to change our habits. Uh, conversation's important. 
part of the reason I started the podcast. Hearing different people's positions, can, we can learn, you know, we can take little pieces from each episode and apply them to our own lives um, to, yeah, just to, as little tools to, to use uh, in our day to day. So I think, I don't know, you've got a lot more we could talk about. <laughs> Rachel is uh, a vegan, straight edge human, uh, which is really cool. We could, we could go into that. Um, the effective altruism I'm super interested in as well. Um, but I'd say we could probably maybe leave that, that stuff for, a, uh, another, another episode. We can go a little deeper and, uh, maybe, I don't know, 12 months when we're back from our little trip. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so excited to hear how it goes. Yeah. Or we might meet you on the West coast. True. I don't know. Oh, that would be delightful. Yeah. That would be cool. Yeah. Get away from this New York winter that's about <laughs> to hit. Oh, don't remind me. So, yeah, really appreciate you coming on for the second time. But, uh, <laughs> a little bit of a, a hiccup tonight. Um, yeah, and thanks for being an inspiring person and, and helping to, you know, change. I know you've changed my mind slightly in, in respect to, to how I, you know, view animals and, and the part they have to play in this um, and the way I interact with uh, with other people i know anna's sitting behind you and she's also been a huge help in me being a little too you know full on with uh with the way i approach a conversation so i think um yeah you've also helped to uh, to make me think a little bit differently and i hope some of the listeners also take you know uh some some cool things away from our episode today but good luck with bp <laughs> eric adams i'm sure you're going to do a lot of good work together and I'm looking forward to, to seeing how it all pans out. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Rachel. I love that episode with Rachel. It was an awesome conversation and I hope you all enjoyed it too. Rachel's an awesome person and I hope you were able to learn a few things from listening to her today. You can find her on Instagram if you would like to connect. Her handle is xvxrachel. And also on Twitter at R underscore Atchison. That is A-T-C-H-E-S-O-N. Reach out to her, say hello, and let her know what you thought of today's episode. Also, if you are enjoying the episodes of Veg Talk and have a few spare minutes available, please leave a review and a rating on your podcast app of choice. It goes a really long way in supporting this show and continues to spread the message to a wider audience around the world. I appreciate all your support, guys. Thank you so much. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you soon.